Good morning. Mark's Gospel, Chapter 2. I told uh, my uh, friend and brother David to uh, kind of keep it short. I don't, I don't know if he listened to me. Uh, uh, what a delightful slip of the tongue. Um, so he never intended to pastor. I assure you, um, there are uh, not a few who would say, well, and he never did, really. Uh, but it's a pleasure uh, to be here, to have this opportunity to share from God's word. Um, I know that I speak for my uh, colleagues uh, on the study commission on doctrine that we have always been treated um, warmly and wonderfully when we have uh, held our annual meetings here and we're off to a good start. Uh, just prior to our session, we viewed a very moving documentary of uh, women who are incredibly gifted, called by God, but who have been hindered in uh, the full embrace of their call and um, at the point of uh, opportunities for them to flourish in their call. And one of the ways we were, we were just discussing um, is um, sort of the subtle maybe unintended, well, I'm sure in this case, unintended ways in which uh, we note the sisters among us whom God has called. Um, and so this was entirely unintentional, um, but um, uh, Reverend Jessica, when you introduced, you were just reading off the list supplied by uh, people in Indianapolis where our World, World Ministry Center uh, is located, and I, and I just want to note for the record that we have three very gifted uh, women leaders on our study commission on doctrine, and all of them are reverend doctors, Allison Coventry and Deborah Wachemeyer and Linda Adams, reverend doctors all, and uh, we're grateful for their contribution to the life of uh, our particular tribe, and uh, more particularly to the study commission on doctrine. Well, uh, sometimes when I go to church, I'm disappointed. I've gathered with uh, friends in Jesus' name, and um, at least initially the experience I have can fairly be called one of disappointment not for the reasons which I'm sure have flooded into your minds in the last several seconds. It doesn't have really anything to do with the order of worship or the kind of worship in general or the kind of music in particular. Rather, it has to do with my expectations. Uh, I approached the hour of worship this wonderful opportunity to enter into the presence of the holy, and I had some ideas about what was wrong with me and with some of the folks I know in our world and how it is that Jesus could meet those needs. I came, I expected, and I was frankly disappointed. You could put it this way, uh, dare I say, Jesus disappointed me. Now, I've noticed that this happens from time to time in the Bible, and it happens in the ministry of Jesus, in the story of Jesus. Take this episode 
in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. Jesus is in Capernaum, staying in a home there. I think, you know, we have to read between the lines, but I think he's anticipating perhaps a bit of rest because he and his disciples have just returned from an intense period of teaching and caring and sharing with all sorts of people, uh, teaching, proclaiming primarily the kingdom, about the kingdom of God, and primarily the reality that God's kingdom is not only real, but God's kingdom is here and open and inviting the people, whoever would, to join him in his movement and to learn to live differently to learn to live in a way that will be normal when God's kingdom fully comes. And so everywhere in the outlying region, towns and villages, uh, in the rural areas and the urban areas, Jesus and his beginnings of a movement have been teaching about God's kingdom and inviting people to enter in. And they taught and then they demonstrated the reality of what they taught primarily by caring and sharing and touching the people who had come to listen and to see what he and his movement were about. And so Jesus was healing people of sickness, fixing their broken bodies, calming tormented minds, freeing people from demonic powers, quite a spectacle as from place to place news spread and people came from all over the place hoping and expecting Jesus might help them and their friends and their nation and their world. So Jesus returns to Capernaum. He's at home. Word gets out and the crowds begin to gather. They pack the place out, inside and outside, surrounding for some distance. Are these crowds milling about, eager to hear, hoping to receive from this Jesus about whom they've begun to hear? And it's in this setting that four friends of a disabled man carry him to the place where they had heard Jesus was. And, of course, before they arrived, they, they quickly discern they're in a bit of trouble because they can see the place is packed out. They're not going to get anywhere near. And so what to do? They've come too far. The effort already uh, organized and expended was too great. They were not to be denied, so we don't know how it happened. We don't know exactly what they did. Perhaps they wormed their way through the crowd on the side or in the back, and somehow they were managed to get up on top, perhaps a terrace. And uh, Mark tells us they dismantled the roof and lowered their friend down into that house directly into the presence of Jesus. Pieces of roofing are falling into the room and uh, dust is swirling in the air and Jesus coughs. Then Mark notes that Jesus sees their faith and then says to the man lying there in front of him, son, your sins 
are forgiven. Now, we're not told this, but I think this was at first surprising, and then it was disappointing. Disappointing because they hadn't come for that. I don't think they would have been opposed to the forgiveness of sins. I don't think they would have uh, wanted to acknowledge this wasn't an important matter. But they came expecting words of healing as hundreds of other people, if the reports can be believe, hundreds of other people had been hearing in recent days. That's why they came. Presumably they knew how to take care of their sins. I mean, after all, there were priests and sacrifices. There was the temple and protocols and procedures that were in place to make sure that all was well in terms of, of their relationship with God and with other people so far as the committing and the forgiving of sins. But there was no hope for the disability that had wrecked their friend's life, this man's life. And so, I submit, at first, there was a lot of disappointment in the presence of Jesus. Surprise and disappointment. Of course, as we've read, there were others who were angry and outraged. I mean, who does this fellow think that he is? This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins? Only God. Nobody said it out loud, but these are the thoughts smoldering and simmering, stirring within the hearts of at least a few of the keepers of order. I imagine another period of awkward silence, and then maybe Jesus coughed again, I don't know. And then he speaks. Why are you thinking these thoughts in your hearts? Which is the easier thing to say? Your sins are forgiven, or get up, pick up that stretcher, and go home? Which is easier? Jesus went on, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on the earth, that in fact I can heal the human heart, I will heal this human body. And so he looks at the man and he says, get up, pick up your stretcher and walk on home. And the man did just that. To recap, at first, everyone is surprised and perhaps disappointed. Then a few are angry. And finally, most everyone in the place was amazed and they said we've never seen anything like this in all our days 
think with me for a moment about this question that Jesus puts to his accusers, to the people who were angry with him. Which is the easier thing to say? To pronounce forgiven or to command be healed? Which is the easier? Well, on the one hand, at the surface level, it would seem rather obvious and rather simple for almost anyone to say, don't worry, be happy. God is love. He certainly understands. Surely he will forgive. Your sins are forgiven. Fairly simple to say such things, but then not at all simple to know if it did any good. I mean, how would you know? I suppose time will tell. It's easy to say, hard to verify. On the other hand, still at the surface level, it would be difficult and daring and maybe a little bit dangerous to say to a man devastatingly disabled, get up, pick up that stretcher, and walk on. That would seem very, very difficult and daring, but then again, it would be pretty easy to verify. Either he would, or he wouldn't. Here is Jesus, who did know what was going on in the human hearts of everybody who was there that day. Here is Jesus doing one thing as a sign that he could do the other thing. Healing the outer person as a sign that he could also heal the inner person undoing the physical impairments as a sign that he could undo and unravel and make right the spiritual ills rooted in the human heart so that you may know that the Son of Man has such authority. Now the logic here is a movement from the difficult to the simple. If one can do the difficult, indeed the impossible, then surely one can do what is simple and easy. And so everybody in the room that day, and a good many in any room in our day, would be quick to think, well, if this one can repair the body, then maybe he can do something about the heart. Because it's easy to think about, it's easy to think that this is an impossible, hopeless situation so far as the bodily impairment goes. And if he can do the difficult, then surely he can do the simple. The logic is a movement from the difficult to the simple. 
But with Jesus, things are not the way they seem. In fact, in the kingdom Jesus declares and brings, reality is often the opposite of how things appear. So Jesus says things like, if you want to gain life, you might be prepared, you must be prepared to lose it. Jesus says greatness, greatness requires service. Greatness requires the humbling of oneself. Indeed, the abject humiliating of oneself at times. Leaders, of course, will lead, but they will lead by serving others. In fact, they will lead best by outdoing the others in service toward others. And citizenry in this kingdom requires a kind of conversion that leads to becoming like children, a condition in some respects from which people never outgrow. And so as it turns out, it is no sweat at all for the God-human who in the beginning made all things out of nothing by simply saying the word, let there be and there was. It's no sweat at all to fix a broken human body, a part of that world originally created in that matter. I mean, it just requires the right person to say the word. But as this story of Jesus unfolds, it becomes very clear it will take a lot of sweat and blood and tears and suffering and dying and then rising up to dethrone the evil powers enticing us to do the wrong, then enslaving us when we do, and then causing these multiple chain reactions of brokenness and pain in every direction. In fact, in order to deal with our hearts, in need of forgiveness and healing, it will in the end call for the recreation of the human person, community, and world. Rise up, pick up that stretcher, and walk on. Jesus said it, and the man did it. And this is a sign, Jesus says, pointing ahead to another's rising up, picking up, and walking on. That will undo the ruin caused by human wrongs of all kinds, the ruin to us and the ruin to others. Jesus does the hard to show he can do the easy. 
But with Jesus, things are never quite what they seem. So what might seem hard for us would be easy for Jesus. And what might seem easy to us is hard, impossible, except for someone like Jesus. Late last summer, in the month of August, my wife, Levon, and I uh, joined 10,000-plus friends of ours in Rwanda as they celebrated their 75th anniversary, uh, the organization of their church, uh, the growing, thriving multiplication that has occurred in that nation, a wonderful, wonderful expression of Christ's body there in that Central African country, 75 years of life and ministry together. It was a powerful and a joyful weekend. As we were driving to the place where our gathering, where the celebration would occur, a pastor friend of ours was driving and taking us, and as he was, he began to tell us about the appointment he had recently received from his general conference to serve throughout the Free Methodist Church in Rwanda. It was an appointment to lead his church to a profound experience and transforming encounter with the grace of Jesus that could help people heal and be reconciled in the aftermath of the genocide. Now, the genocide occurred 24 years ago. 24 years ago, next month, where in April of 1994, in the space of four, maybe a little bit longer uh, period of time, four weeks, nearly a million people were slaughtered. Incredibly, many of them slaughtered by one another. And our friend said, so this is in our past, but the reality is you can go anywhere in Rwanda today and find yourself in a room full of people. Everything is okay on the surface, but under the surface, maybe not so okay. In that room, there are likely to be people who are actually guilty of what they did 24 years ago. And they still harbor hatred for a class of people they think threatened them. Meanwhile, in the same room, he says, there will be others who remember well what happened 24 years ago. They were there, they saw it, they felt it to their loved ones, to themselves. The killing and the maiming, the running and the hiding, they still bear the scars from it. Some physical, many internal and soul deep. So in any given social setting, our friend was telling us, people can look around at those in the room room with them, and they are aware that they're in this room full 
of perpetrators and victims all mixed together. Everything is stable. Everything is cool and calm for now. But many people believe it's only a matter of time before there's this this eruption of violence once again. This is our reality, he said. And why? Under the surface in the human heart lurk wounds, hurts, anger, bitterness, and fear that have festered for 24 years and counting. And get this, our friend told us, the government officials most recently have been saying to the churches, you must help us. Now, the same month when we're visiting there and hearing about this special appointment, anticipating this grand and glorious celebration, that very same month, we also learned that North Korea was threatening to nuke Guam. Neo-Nazis staged a demonstration and march in Charlottesville. And we read of escalating fears of terror attacks organized by ISIS-inspired students all across a series of major European cities. So you see, all around the world, the makings of genocide brewing in broken, bitter human hearts. In 1987, the New York Times commissioned a study on violence in America, 1987. Uh, That's like 31 years ago, I think. And their conclusion was this. People who were 20 years old then had a 72% chance of becoming victim of violent crime. I wouldn't want to bet that the odds are better today. In 2012, another study reported almost one in five women and one in 71 men reported experiencing sexual assault at some time during their lives. If that holds true in general, consider how many of us are vulnerable or have already suffered. Imagine the potential devastation and pain, the ruin to one's view of self and others, the anger, the bitterness, and whatever might flow from all of that to hurt others, boomerang back and hurt self even more. The human heart 
is broken, sick, and disordered in all kinds of ways by all manner of wrong that can flow out like poison in every direction. And we call ourselves a developed nation, civilized even, makes one wonder what it is we're developing. And yet, the makings of murder and genocide lurk in the human heart waiting to erupt. Jesus looked at that man and he said, your sins are now forgiven. And when he said it, there was more going on than it would seem. Jesus did what for him, for Jesus, was the easier as a sign he could do the harder. Healing bodies that were broken as a sign he could heal and repair hearts that were broken, hardened, bitter, enraged, vengeful, or hearts that had come to be empty and calloused, insensitive and self-protected in all kinds of ways against further injury. Our Rwandan friend testified. He was there 24 years ago, as was his brother. He testified. It is only the grace of Jesus that can comfort us, heal our hearts, forgive us, and set us free, and empower us to release all of that past, including its perpetrators and murderers, into the care of God, and even dare to reconcile. Is there hope and help for the grave evils loose in our world today? I think we would all say there is. But the world is waiting to see that Jesus' forgiveness brings with it a cosmic release of sin's grip on the human person. For just as Jesus rose up and walked out of that tomb and one day will reappear in human history to complete his global reformation project, so he is at work today dealing the death blows to all forms of sin that in all sorts of ways break and contaminate and violate us and threaten profoundly the very relationships that make us human. When we commit to the way of Jesus, floodgates of grace open for us 
that can mend our broken hearts, calm our suspicions and fears, draw us toward others, even scary others, grace that fills our hearts with love that overcomes the evil, that covers a multitude of past and present and potential sins, grace that can clean up the relational contamination, creates safety and security for the violated, and grace that can even change perpetrators into participants in the beautiful and transforming way of Jesus. At first, Jesus disappointed everybody that day. They came looking for something very different than he offered, but Jesus knows best. He served the needy. He touched the broken. He helped the helpless in all sorts of ways because he loved them. But in expressing his love, in embracing the broken with his love, he also signals that he and he alone can heal the heart that is broken, burdened with hurt, and poisoned by anger and bitterness. He can heal the heart. That's what forgiveness promises and brings. So that from the heart that is made whole and well, filled full and overflowing with spirit love, there can then flow a way of life that joins Jesus in making things right. As we look to the Lord in prayer, here are two questions. Has your heart been healed? And will you follow this Jesus, serving, caring for others as a sign of what Jesus and Jesus alone can do in and through? every open human heart. Let us pray. Loving Lord, we are grateful for this part of your word. We are grateful that often you disappoint us when we would have settled for so much less in the largest scheme of things you're offering all of it to us. And so in this season, as we hear again your call to follow, let us 
settle for nothing other than the complete and total healing of our hearts. Let us hear you speak those words over us and over our friends. Your sins are forgiven. And make of us a faithful and powerful expression of your ongoing movement that shows our world what you and you alone, Lord Jesus, can do. Match our world's desperate needs with your fully, utterly adequate grace. In your name, loving Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.